You're listening to the sermon series on the letter to the Philippians at Sojourn Church, Carlisle. In this letter, the Apostle Paul calls believers to live on the earth now as citizens of heaven. This means that Christians should find their identity not in this world, but in the world to come, centered on Jesus Christ. Well, good morning. Oh, that was kind of shabby. Good morning. Good morning. It's good to see everybody here this morning. My name is Pastor James Fields. I'm the lead pastor here at Sojourn Church Carlisle. And it's indeed a great privilege and honor to have you with us here this morning. We're going to continue in our series in the book of Philippians. So if you will stand with me, we're going to read this morning from Philippians chapter 4. We're going to read verses 1 through 9. Philippians chapter 4, verses 1 through 9. If you cannot stand because you don't have children or because you're not feeling well, that's okay. You could be seated. But for those who are willing and able, please go ahead and stand with us as we read God's word together. So here's Philippians chapter 4, verses 1 through 9. Here are the inspired words of the Holy, uh, from the Apostle Paul um, from the Holy Spirit. It says this, So then, my dearly loved and longed for brothers and sisters, my joy and my crown, in this manner, stand firm in the Lord, dear friends. I urge, um, I urge Yodia and I urge Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I also ask you, true partners, to help these women who have contended for the gospel at my side, along with Clement and the rest of my co-workers, whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again. Rejoice. Let your graciousness be known to everyone. The Lord is near. Don't worry about any, anything, but in everything through prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any moral excellence and if there is anything praiseworthy, Dwell on these things. Do what you have learned and received and heard from me and, and seen in me, and the peace of God will be with you. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Would you pray with me? Father, we do love you and we do thank you for this great day. We thank you, God, for the command to rejoice. And God, we do pray that you would help us to rejoice even, God, in our circumstance. Father, we pray, Lord, that your word will go forth and not come back void. Hide me behind the cross. And Father, as always, I ask that you would take my little and make much of it. Glorify yourself. Father, I pray that some mind would be changed and some heart would be transformed for the advancement of your kingdom, even, especially even under the sound of my voice right now. We do pray this in the matchless and honorable name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. You may be seated. Imagine with me, if you will, a man walking in New York City, enjoying his day, seeing the sunshine and enjoying the smells of the day, hot dog and garbage and everything else that New York City has to offer in that big, wonderful, beautiful city that's there. And while walking, he accidentally bumps a bucket that is filled with water, and the water spills, excuse me, and it smears a sidewalk mural 
that a local painter had spent the last 10 hours working on. Let me ask you a question. Who's responsible for the spill? How many of you say, raise your hand, how many of you would say that the person who kicked the bucket is responsible for the spill? How many would say that by a show of hands? Majority? Maybe half, okay. Yeah, he's the most obvious choice. He was the one walking. He's the one who kicked the bucket and he caused the spill. However, what if I told you that he was, the one, he was not the one who was responsible for the spill? What if I told you that someone else was responsible for the spill? You see, in this life, we have hardships. We have heartache. We have immense pain and suffering, much like the kick that was afflicted upon the bucket. But in the eyes of God, how we choose to respond to life's various trials, tribulations, and trouble is just as important, if not more important, than what has actually caused our pain or our discomfort. When your life is hit, when your bucket is kicked, if you will, how do you respond? Or another way of putting it is, is what comes out when your life bucket is kicked. In other words, what comes out of your bucket or maybe even your heart when hard, and, and when hard things cause it to spill over or to be pushed over? See, we're at the end of Philippians, and we get to see what is spilled out of Paul's bucket, out of Paul's heart. And what we expect to see from Paul is worry, panic, uncertainty, withdrawal, and maybe even despair. You see, if anyone had a reason to worry, it was the Apostle Paul. Remember his story up to this point. He was in chain and he was in prison for simply just preaching the gospel, according to Philippians 1, 29 and 30. He had major disagreements that were happening among Christians at the church of Philippi that he himself couldn't go and intervene. There were divisions among the believers in Rome. And Paul, even himself, while all this was going on, he was himself was awaiting his own impending death, not knowing if it was going to come from Roman execution or for, or for just being imprisoned until the point of his death and under natural causes. And today we have the awesome opportunity. We have the great privilege of examining Paul's theology on worry. Worry. And the first thing we see here is this of the problem of worry, or he, how worry is defined. Now, before we begin, I want to say this openly and publicly because I want everyone to understand what we're talking about and what we're not talking about. Feeling anxiousness or feeling worry is not a sin. Amen? However, feeling anxious and out of control can lead to sinful thoughts and or activity. I love it how some, how, how some people define worry. One person defines worry this way. It says this, we worry when we imagine the future in a terrible way. I, I can say that I am prone to this because 
Every time I tell my kids not to do something, it's always out of worry. Elliot, don't jump off that tree because you might fall and break your leg. Don't pull on the dog's uh, leash too hard because if you do, you may rupture his throat. I'm, I'm worrying and everything that I imagine about the future or what could come out of any situation is always tied to my anxiousness or my worry. I love it how someone else said, puts it. They put it this, set, this way about defining worry. He says, worry seems to be an immense desire for something accompanied by a fear of the consequence of not receiving it. Worry seems to be an immense desire for something accompanied by a fear of the consequence of not receiving it. I love how James 4 verses 1 through 3 talks about it. It says this, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and you cannot obtain, so you fight and you quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask, and you ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. Lastly, this is probably my favorite definition of worry here. It says this, worry involves imagining the future in a worst case scenario and then freaking out about it. I love what Proverbs 12, 25 says about this. It says, anxiety in a man's heart weighs it down, but good words make it glad. You know, worrying is much like a simple activity that many of you probably enjoy each and every day. A simple activity is such as going on your porch or on your front lawn or in your patio and sitting in a rocking chair. Worry is a lot like sitting in a rocking chair. You constantly go back and you constantly go forth without going anywhere. <laughs> this is what worry does and this is what, how worry is described and, and personified in our lives. Look with me in verse 6 with this word that Paul uses here. He says in verse 6, don't worry about anything, but in everything through prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your request to God. My version says worry. Your version may say anxiousness. But the Greek transliteration of this word means literally that worry means that you're literally being pulled in two different directions. Your hope pulls you in one direction and our fear pulls us in the opposite direction. And you literally feel like you're being torn apart. The old English word for this word worry means to strangle. And I don't know about you, but I've been in a situation where I've worried about situations so much that it, it almost feels like I'm being strangled to death. I'm sure many of us can understand what that might feel like when we allow worry to rule and to have dominion in our lives. You see, there's three reasons not to worry. The first reason is this, is because worrying has physical consequences. Headaches, back pain, ulcers. Worrying affects our thinking and affects our digestion and even affects our coordination. Scientific studies have shown that worrying is not just in your mind, it also affects, uh, it also affects your physical ability to live everyday life. But not only does worrying have physical consequences, worrying also has spiritual consequences. If I had to define worry in any way, it would simply be this. Worrying is wrong thinking in the mind 
and wrong feelings in the heart about circumstances, people, and things. But here's the greatest reason not to worry. Beyond the physical consequences, beyond the spiritual consequences, here's the greatest reason not to worry, because worry is the greatest thief of joy. It is impossible as a Christian to have joy and worry live in the same vicinity within your life. I love what one commentator says about this. He says, anxiety is a joy killer. Anxiety will also make you feel self-absorbed. When you're consumed with your worries, you will be less likely to serve others wholeheartedly. Worry distracts you and it keeps you from mission. It also robs you of peace, which Paul says will fill the hearts of praying believers. All of these are spiritual issues. So if worry is such a problem, if worry has these physical consequences, it has spiritual consequences, it has emotional consequences, the obvious question we have to ask ourselves, what is the secret of not worrying? And I want to be careful how I lay this out because I don't think there's this uh, one-size-fit-all one answer to this. You know, a lot of preachers, I, I've seen it even on, you know, on Facebook this morning, a lot of pe- preachers talk about the gospel is in this way, that we just want to preach Jesus. And listen, I'm all about preaching Jesus because Jesus is the one whom we love, whom we adore, and whom we see. But the gospel is not just about preaching a person. The gospel is about you learning how to walk in relationship with that person. We're not here just to preach Jesus to you. We're here to show you that Jesus, the living Savior, the Son of God, the one who is intimate to return, is going to is not just um, died for your sins and was resurrected from the grave and is sitting at the right hand of the God Father right now and is coming again to gather His church. You can have relationship with that Jesus. So often in the church, we've truncated the gospel to just just talking about a person (laughs) and not talking about what it means to live in relationship with him, to have him rule and reign, to have you come near to you in your midnight hour, to have him come into you and come near to you in your financial struggle. We're not here just to preach Jesus. We're here to talk about how you grow in relationship and how you allow Jesus to have full lordship over your life. So I I say that because the answer to the question, what is the secret of not worrying, is that victory over worrying is an inside-out job. You see, as humans, we can't just stop worrying. However, we can replace or exchange our worry with something else. And what Paul calls us to in this verse is to take our worry and to exchange it with something else, something better. And what he defines that is something better is a secure mind. Look with me in verse 7. He says this, And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. 
See, Paul's not just preaching a person. Paul is preaching a relationship. Look at verse 9. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the peace of God will be with you. Paul provides the prerequisite for having a secure mind in Christ in verses 6 through 9. He says it in, 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 in these three R's. I'm going to give them to you right now if you're taking notes, so feel free to write them down. Right prayer, verses 6 and 7. Right perspective, verse 8, and then right practice, verse 9. Right prayer, verses 6 and 7. Right perspective, verse 8, and right practice, verse 9. Look with me in verses 6 and 7. Paul says these beautiful words, and if you could, as a family, I encourage every family, and I'm not just talking about men and women with, with children. I'm just saying anyone who is uh, uh, married in this, in this uh, under the sound of my voice, or all of my singles that are out there, I challenge you to put this verse to memory this week. Philippians 4, 6 through 7. Don't worry about anything, but through prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, make your request known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Notice what Paul doesn't say. Paul doesn't just write, don't worry. Paul doesn't just write, pray about it or think yourself happy. No, Paul, like a skilled technician, he encourages them to deny their nervous energy, but to simply, excuse me, he encourages them not to deny their nervous energy, but to simply refocus it upon something else, namely prayer. And in this small caveat in verses 6 and 7, Paul involves all three aspects of prayer. He says prayer, petition, and thanksgiving. Yours may say prayer, supplication, and thanksgiving, but they all mean the same thing. He says don't worry about anything but everything through prayer. Notice what prayer entails. This is the general word for making our requests known to God. Prayer carries the idea of adoration, devotion, and worship. And it's a good reminder for us as a church that whenever we find ourselves worrying, our first action ought to be to get alone with God and to worship him. Because why do we need to do that? Why do we need to worship God? Because we must be reminded about the greatness, the grandeur, and the majesty of God. Every day that you wake up, you have to understand and you have to rethink and reorient your mind to understand who God is and who you are in relationship to him. Every single day. Because we are too quick to forget, including myself. We have to remind ourselves. Why prayer? Because we must remember that God is big enough to solve our problems. I love what Kirk Franklin says in his, one of my favorite new songs right now, Strong God. He says, in your time of distress, worry, and fatigue, you need a strong God. We need a real God, the God with the resurrection power from the grave to take away the hate, to heal the human race. And then he goes on to talk about how we we need a, we need a, we need a strong God. God. And in our times of prayer, in our times of building that relationship with him in prayer, 
you're building up that reality. You're building up that relationship. Why is this important? Because we've been created to worship, and if we don't worship God, then we're always tempted to worship something else in place of him. Remember we talked about this last week? Seeking his face and not just his hands. Every time you go to God in prayer, start off with adoration. What does that look like? Let me give you a quick example. Instead of going to God first and foremost, telling you about all your problems and all your dilemmas, remind yourself, God, I may not feel it to this morning. My kids may be yelling. My bank account may be empty, but I'm going to remind myself not right now, even before I make any request known to you, that you are a good God, that you are holy, that you are beautiful, and that I can have a secure mind in you, even as I pray to you right now. I don't have a secure mind. I feel empty. I feel depleted. I feel exposed. But God, I'm coming to you because I know you're stronger than anything in this world has to offer to me. Adoration. Start off with adoration. Start off with understanding who God is, because as you understand how, who he is, then you can relate better to him. Remember this, we say this all the time, our view of God determines our pursuit of God. If you have a wrong view of God, you're not going to pursue him as a strong God. If he's a God that you just tell your problems about, you're not going to talk to him till you have a problem. If he's a God that's just there to, to, to kind of soothe your pain when you go through marital strife or when a loved one dies, then you're only going to talk to him during those seasons of life. And God is just saying, is saying to us this morning that I'm much bigger than what you imagine me to be. I can handle anything and everything that you throw at me because I'm a strong God. There's nothing you can bring to me that's too hard. There's nothing that you can bring to me that's too difficult. There's nothing that you can bring to me that is so embarrassing that I will turn my face from you as my child. That's a strong God. And that's the God that we worship. And we pray to. It's a good reminder for us as a church that we become what we worship. And when we take the time to worship God, our upside down world turns right side up. And thus we're able to use worship and adoration to combat worry. So not only should we pray, but then he also says supplication or petition. Supplication means this. It's an earnest sharing of our needs and our problems. It's honestly, in another way, it's, just, it's being real with God. It's being honest with God. It's talking to God like you would talk to your best friend or your spouse. You know, one of the greatest, I'm talking to young married couples right now or soon to be engaged couples or couples who are dating on the verge of wanting to be married. I'm talking to you right now. One of the greatest victories that I've seen in my marriage is taking my frustrations and, and, and concerns that I've had with my family or with my spouse, taking them to God before I take them to her. Understanding that, that God, first of all, has to fix me because as much as I have frustration with them, God is not just concerned about fixing them. He's, about, he's concerned about fixing me in order that I can love them and pursue them in the way that he's called me to as husband and as father. Instead of going to one another about your problems all the time, playing ping pong, take that ball and throw it in heaven. Sit on it for two days and then come back and talk to each other. I guarantee that the sovereign God, our strong God, will allow you to see 
the plank, the, the, the speck in your own eye and stop focusing so much on the log of your spouse's eye. I guarantee you he will do that. Because again, our God is not just about, not just a person. He's a person that focuses on the relationship with him and growing in intimacy with him. God, it's a good reminder for us as a church that God wants us to be earnest in our accent. He wants us to be real. He wants us to be honest. He wants us to be transparent. So I encourage you this week, not just to memorize verses six and seven, but I encourage you also to be honest and to be real with God in regards to what's really going on in your life. You know, <laughs> I have a phobia of rodents. I don't know if you know this about me or not, but I do. And I'm, I'm kind of ashamed to admit it because I found in my yard that I got a lot of holes that are just kind of popping up. And there's these things in Kentucky called voles. I don't know if you know what about them. They're not moles, but V voles that are just like taking over my yard. And I'm terrified, to be honest with you, of these things. I haven't seen, I have not seen one at all by God's grace, but I just see evidence of them being there. And just knowing that they're in proximity to me, I, I'm, I'm, I mean, I'm, I'm ready to go to war. And you can ask my wife, I go to war with these things. I bought about a 20 bag thing of rodent repellent. And every time I cut my grass and I see a new hole, I just put five or six little thing pellets in there. I just saw one yesterday in a new place. So I know that they're moving around. They're trying to find a new place. So I put a little pellets in there. And every time I do that, um, I, I'm reminded, uh, God reminded me of something even as I was doing this this week. God reminded me that worry is much like poison. He, he reminded me to be careful of what comes into my life easily. Be careful of what comes into my life too easily, what just shows up at my front door. When I put those pellets there, I'm, I'm inviting those rodents to say, hey, here's a free meal. But guess what? When they eat that meal, guess what that meal is intended to do? <laughs> Kill them. <laughs> Destroy them. They don't have to go anywhere. They don't have to move. It just automatically appears at their front door, and they partake of it, and they eat it, and they die. And God reminded me to be careful of what comes into my life too easily. You see, Satan loves to plant poison in our lives, and then he willingly invites us to eat it. He willingly allows us to partake of it, knowing that it's not for our good, but yet for our destruction. Notice, the things that we have to see God for, the things that we have to go to God for, we have to ask God for, they must be worthy of our pursuit because we have to go to God before we get it. God is the one who brings about godliness in our lives. We can't just manufacture godliness in our lives. We can't just manufacture beautiful gospel representing marriages just because we want to. God is a gatekeeper 
of every righteous and good, good thing. And the gatekeeper that he's called us to is to seek him in prayer with supplication. And the last word here is with thanksgiving. And you know what this means. It just means to give thanks to God. It means to give him honor and praise. Paul here counsels us to take everything to God in prayer, which means don't worry about anything, but pray about everything. See, taking our concerns to God is the first step towards victory over worry. And here's the result. Look at verse 7. Here's the result of not worrying. But what you have learned and received and heard from me and seen in me and the peace of God or the God of peace will be with you. So we're to pray to God. We're to make, be real with him. We're to be thankful to him. And there's a result that will come from that. It says that the peace of God will be with us. What is the peace of God? The peace of God it is much like a guardian, if you will. I love what verse 7 says. It says, the peace of God will guard your heart and your mind. The peace of God will stand over these two areas of your life that create worry. It will stand over the heart, wrong feelings, and will stand over the mind of wrong thinking. Here's my simple definition for what a peace of God is. My simple definition, it is to maintain a quiet confidence regardless of circumstances, people, or things. That is what the peace of God entails. It is to maintain a quiet confidence regardless of circumstances, people, or things. Confidence not in yourself, but a confidence in God. There's a story about a man who was in a hurry to catch a plane. He ran huffing and puffing down towards his gate. He passed by a guy who was dressed in a uniforms, a pilot's uniform. The guy said to the breathless man, where are, you in a, where are you in a hurry to? Oh, the man said, I'm late for my plane. I don't want to miss my plane. He proceeded to tell the guy what flight he was hurrying to. The uniform man or the, the pilot said to him, don't be in a hurry. I'm, I'm piloting that plane. <laughs> What is the lesson here? The lesson here is this, is that if the pilot is chilling, you can chill too. Don't stress yourself out about unnecessary things. Wait on God and trust that if God is taking his time, if God is taking his time to respond to you, if God is taking his time, so can you. You don't have to rush God because God is the pilot of your life. And he knows what he's doing. Don't worry about anything, but in everything through prayer, petition, and thanksgiving, make your request known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. So how can we have peace? Number one, don't worry about anything. Worry should not be a part of our lives. Because we don't have, to, we don't have to a heart that is filled with worry and anxiety. Is worry a sin? No. But can worry lead to sin? Absolutely yes. See, you shouldn't, you shouldn't worry more, any more than you should gossip, envy, covet, or do any of, those, any, any of the like of those things. 
I told you earlier that I had a phobia of rodents, and it's so true. And honestly, I only had one that actually showed up in my garage. It was a long night, and I left my garage open, unfortunately, all night. And I went to church to, to, uh, to do a sermon online about four or five months ago, or weeks ago. And when I came home after closing the garage, I noticed that something had gnawed up the plastic at the bottom of my garage. And <laughs> of course, having a phobia of rodents, I started freaking out like, okay, man, where is this thing at? So we opened it up. We tore about everything. I got a bat and a mask on, garbage bag. I'm just going to war with this thing. And it, it, obviously, I think it ran off when I came home. When I opened the garage, it was there when I, when I left. But when I, as soon as I came home, opened the garage, it, it ran out. But I, but I remember specifically, again, me having a phobia of rodents and going. I'm the type of guy that when I go to McDonald's, I don't just like order my food. I, I noticed like the rat traps that are around the building. I noticed how many rats. I'm like, man, they got a lot of rats around here. It's like five or three. You know, I'm really have a phobia of this thing. So please don't prank me with any rat things. Um, I will scream and that's okay. But uh, I, I, I freak out about it. My wife is probably chuckling in the back about it right now because she knows it's true. But I thought about that for myself. I said, I live in anxiety and worry about this phobia of rodents. I look for them in my house. I try to, kids, pick up the dog food because we don't want to have rats or mice. I mean, I just keep throwing this out there all the time. And I've never had one, never, like that I know, known of, until the one that was in the garage. And the reason why I knew it, I had it, was because of evidence of it being there. There was gnawed up plastic. There was things in my a garage that I left in a certain way that's been moved around. You can tell that this animal was trying to get out or find a way of escape. And in that moment, God reminded me and he calmed my mind and said, James, you worry about these things every single day of your life. You go and you look in your house and you look all around the garden looking. You've never seen one. You've never experienced one. But he reminded me that, James, if you have this problem or if you have this issue, what you worry about, you'll see evidence of it in your life. You'll see things that are just not where they're supposed to be or not how you've left them. And I want to say that to you today about worry, is that if, if worry is truly an, a, a, a stronghold in your life, if it's truly something that is really um, pervasive and just something that is really crippling you, you will see the effects. You'll see the effects of it. You'll see the manifestations of it. You'll see it show up where it shouldn't probably show up. And I want you to know if that's you today, there is hope for you because there's hope for me in my worry and my anxiety. And it's found in verse 6a. Don't worry about anything. But two, verse six, and verse six, second half of verse six, pray about everything. Paul reminds us that peace only comes through prayer. I love what Isaiah 26, three says. It says, he will keep the mind that is, you will keep the mind that is dependent on you in perfect peace, for it is trusting in you. Remember, victory over worry is not just stop worrying. Victory is an exchange. Victory over worry is an exchange that you exchange your worry with prayerfulness. And you exchange, God, you exchange with God. God, take my worry and you give me peace. Take my anxiety and you give me a secure mind. Don't worry about anything. Pray about everything. And lastly, this is probably my favorite part. 
We can fight anxiety with faith, with, uh, anxiety with faith in God's promises. See, Paul doesn't say that prayer will keep us away from problems. Please hear me when I say this. Paul does not say that prayer will keep us away from our problems. But what Paul does say is this. Paul says that once we pray and give our burdens over to the Lord, that we can have peace in the midst of our problems. I don't know if that's for somebody today, but but you need to hear that. Prayer will not keep you away from problems, but prayer will give you peace in the midst of your problems. It will be like a guardian over you, like a soldier who's standing watch over you in prison. Think about Paul and Paul and his situation. He's a prisoner under the 24-hour watch and care of Roman soldiers. And this word that he uses here helps us to see this image that Paul sees peace, much like a Roman soldier standing over a prisoner. So in the same way, the peace of God will guard our hearts and our anxiousness um, and our anxious thoughts and our anxious fears even when they are still there. Don't worry about anything. Pray about everything. Fighting anxiety with faith in God's promises. One of my favorite psalms is a a song by a guy named Marvin Sapp. It's called Praise Him in Advance. And one of the evidence that you'll see as you fight One of the evidence that you'll see that you're becoming whole as you fight and as you struggle and as you learn to depend on God despite your anxiety and fear is that you'll be able to praise God in advance, meaning that you don't have to wait till it shows up. You don't have to wait till it manifests itself, that you don't have to wait till your prayers answer before you can give praise and thanksgiving to God. It's much like us saying grace before dinner. We haven't partaken of the meal. We don't even know what it tastes like, but we pause and we give thanks to God even before we see or we taste the beauty of that meal. It's much like you, not as sports have been reintroduced into our culture, cheering on your favorite baseball team, the Cincinnati Reds or whoever they may be, cheering them on during the game, even before you see them win at the very end of the game. You're cheering them. You are exhorting them. You are encouraging them. You are screaming to the top of your lungs to push them on to victory. You don't know if they're going to get the victory, but you're pushing them on. You're, you're, You're exhorting them on to victory even before you see it. It's much like going to the bowling alley. <laughs> I grew up going to bowling alley. My mom was a really good bowler. Um, back in the day. She probably still is today, too. And, and throwing that ball down the lane and throwing one of these, you know, you know, one of these, like, I don't know how to do it. Or one of these, if you do that grandma ball, you know. We think that once we let that ball go and we, we hold that pose, that this pose does something to that ball, but it really does nothing. It just makes you look cool. With God, we don't have to strike a pose. We don't have to convince God to be good. He is good. We don't have to pray to him five times a day to make him be on our team. We don't have to fast. 
But one thing that God wants us to do more than anything is he wants us to recognize his character, his goodness in Christ. He wants us to be reminded that God will be good because he has been good and because he is always going to be good. You don't have to make God good in your life. If you're struggling with anxiety or you're struggling with worry, I encourage you, yes, to release your burden to God, but as you release it, don't worry about it. It's much like putting a piece of mail in the mailbox. Once you put that piece, piece of mail in the mailbox, you don't think about it. To you, it's just, it's, for, I would say for me, for me, when I deliver mail, when I put it in the mailbox, even though it's still there and I know it's there, for me, it's, it's just as good as being delivered. I'm like, it's, it's, it's going to get there. I don't have to worry about it. It's there. And when you go to God in prayer, it's much like the same thing. We give God our worries. We give him our concerns, much like putting letters in a mailbox. And we have to understand that, okay, God, I put it in the right place and I trust you with the results. I trust you with the results that you are good and you will do work things out for my good and for your glory in every way. Will you pray with me? Father, we do thank you and praise you. And you're a good God. We thank you, God, that you have called us to right prayer, to right perspective, and to a right practice. Thank you, God, that you love us as we are and not as we pretend to be. In every way, I pray that you would grow us in our prayerfulness as a church. That, God, we wouldn't just talk about a person named Jesus, but we will talk about a person whom we know intimately, personally named Jesus. May we grow in relationship with him. And not just point to people to Jesus like a billboard that's down the street on Taylor Boulevard, but introduce him as someone as being our best friend, our closest confidant, the one who has calmed our fears, the one who has stilled our anxiety, the one who is the guardian of the peace that rules over our minds that surpasses all understanding. May we know that type of Jesus this day and forevermore. I pray, God, that there's anybody in my sound of my voice who doesn't know that type of Jesus, that they would begin to know him. They would confess their need for him. And then they would pray and ask that God would come and rule in their heart through the person of Jesus. That Jesus would be the one that they surrender to each and every day as Lord and Savior of their lives. Thank you, God, that you've called us to relationship and not just a person. Now, Father, as we take this communion, I pray that you help us not to see it as just bread and juice. Remind us, God, of the great promise you've given us through your blood and through your sacrifice, that you love us, that you are for us, and that you are able to calm any storm that we find ourselves in through your resurrection from the grave and your second coming. May we find that hope now, even as we partake of that meal. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm James A.P. Fields, Jr., lead pastor at Sojourn Church Carlisle. Thanks for listening. We're a church that is rooted in the community of South Louisville, and we are seeking to advance the gospel of Christ in South Louisville and beyond. For more sermons, info about our church, and ways you can support our ministry, visit SojournChurch.com backslash Carlisle, C-A-R-L-I-S-L-E. God bless.